going to continue our series in the Beatitudes. Took a break last week, but we're, we're winding down to the end. We have this week and next week in the Beatitudes, and then we're going to celebrate Easter together, and then we're just going to keep on going through the Sermon on the Mount, and I can't wait to see what the Lord does through this. And you know, it worked out next week is Palm Sunday, and we had kind of wrestled, I had wrestled with like, what do we, should we do something specific on the cross? Should we, should we look at the death of Jesus in any way? But the way it worked out on the calendar is we're going to look at the last Beatitude, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake on Palm Sunday. You know how every text we make our way to Jesus, and so I can't wait next week to look at that. But this morning, we're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Father, this is your word. We're thankful for it. We pray that you'd open our eyes to see it for what it is, to understand it. Father, meet this word in our hearts and bring real lasting change to our lives that we know gets worked out in relationships. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So what's the opposite of peace, do you think? I I was trying to, there's not like a real clear word that stuck out to me. Maybe violence, but you might not be a violent person, but you might not also say you have peace. Conflict maybe, division, fracturing, I woke up Monday morning with this text on my mind, excited to prepare to preach about peacemakers, and uh, our culture decided to just give a wonderful illustration at the Oscars of the opposite of a peacemaker. Uh, If anyone's culturally astute and watched our Fresh Prince of Bel Air uh, pull a wonderful move at the Oscars and walk up and just smack the host right in the face. Uh, it was like, I think everyone was in shock. Everyone's still in shock. Like, what just happened? How was how he not arrested? Or what? He was laughing one minute, and he was angry the next minute, and it was clear. I saw people talk throughout the week. This was not just an in-the-moment, like, he got really angry. There's clearly something going on inside of him that he's got to do some healing, figure out how to defend his wife in the right way, figure out how to receive other people's positive or negative comments, But I thought, okay, we have an example. It's fresh in our minds of what it does not look like to make peace. But what does it look like to be a peacemaker? We're certainly not lacking for negative examples, whether it's Will Smith at the Oscars, or whether it's a war happening in Ukraine, whether it's the increasingly divide between political sides. We're not lacking for those negative examples. But what does it mean to make peace? Why is it so difficult for us to make peace. What is it about relationships that seem to just breed conflict? This morning, we're gonna look at Matthew 5, 9, and we're gonna see that God makes peace with you in Jesus, and he invites you to be a peacemaker through Jesus. God makes peace with you in Jesus, and then he invites you to be a peacemaker through Jesus. So this morning, we're gonna start just looking at the first point, and that's the need for peace the need for peace. So I've got to admit, Tim Keller helped me a little bit see uh, how the wonderful movie Frozen makes a lot of sense out of our cultural moment. If you've seen Frozen, maybe you have, maybe you've heard it sung a million and one times. But Tim Keller, old dude, pastor in New York City, used the little girl's movie Frozen to interpret our times. And I I thought it was pretty brilliant. He takes the famous song, Let It Go, and he actually explains how in the song, Let It Go, you see Elsa shift the way she views herself and identity. The song starts off, don't let them in, don't let them see, 
Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. And, and this, Tim Keller says, I think he's right. This is the traditional view of identity, right? Something's wrong with you, conceal it. You have these feelings and emotions. You're not sure how they're going to be received. Or you're not sure where they come. Push those down. Don't feel those things. Be this person that you have to be, that you should be, that you're supposed to be. But then as the song goes on, what does she say? Let it go, let it go. Can't hold it back anymore. Turn away, slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. Wonderful movie, right? Elsa went from being totally controlled by the thoughts and opinions of others to completely ignoring the thoughts of others and even throwing away the closest relationship she had. In other words, she went from a traditional view of herself to a modern view of herself. She went from being totally controlled by the opinions of others and completely changing who she was to fit some mold that she felt like she had to fit. And then she shifted and way overcorrected to, I don't care about any of you and I'm out. I'm gonna go live by myself in the mountains, which is a very modern view of the self, which is I am who I am and there's nothing you can do to change me. You have to accept me and affirm me. And this is what I think we can call radical individualism, which is the worldview of our time. Radical individualism. And today we're gonna look at just one problem that radical individualism causes, and it's this. Radical individualism destroys peace. There's many other ways that it's unsustainable as a worldview, but one of them is that it destroys peace. We cannot have peace with others if we live as radical individualists because Individualism like this elevates the individual's desires and freedoms over everything else. Individualism as a way of viewing the world, as a way of being in the world, elevates the individual, elevates me over everyone and everything else. So anything that stands in the way of individual self-expression, anything that stands in the way of that is repressive. It's persecution and it makes me a victim. And here's the neat thing. You might be going, okay, you're using this big radical individualism and worldview. And now these might seem like bigger words, but they're really not. And I promise you, everybody agrees that radical individualism is a problem. Left, right, Christian, non-Christian, everybody agrees. Just to prove the point to you, I read articles condemning, saying that radical individualism is wrong. I read articles from the New York Times and Southern Baptist pastors and Psychology Today and professors all say individualism is the way we view the world through the lens of the big me. We view the world through my own lens. So remember this point is the need for peace. Well, it is impossible to have peace if the way I view the world is through what's in it for me, how can I express who I am and how can I make you conform to me? Martin Lloyd-Jones said that self-centeredness is at the root of conflict with others. And self-centeredness is actually also at the core of what sin is. John Henderson is a counselor and he defines sin like this. Sinfulness is not primarily about doing sinful things, but an entire way of life that devalues God and exalts self at the very core. So individualism as a way of life destroys us from the inside out because it exalts ourself. And every individual, even if you live with this self-centered worldview, you know you're not perfect. 
Even if your whole worldview is, I am who I am and there's nothing you can do to tell me otherwise. We all, at the end of the day, lay our head on the pillow and know there's things about me that aren't right. There's things about me that aren't finished, that aren't complete, I'm imperfect. Now, we, from a biblical worldview, are able to say this is sin. We're not perfect. We have imperfections, but then in light of those imperfections, in light of that sin, shame follows closely behind. We're ashamed because we're not perfect. And then shame leads us to cover our bad. It leads us to avoid authenticity, to avoid intimacy, to avoid God, and to avoid others. When we're ashamed of who we are, it will lead us even further away from relationships because we'll think, I don't want someone in close enough to know me. I don't want someone who, as Lynn uses the phrase, get past polite. I don't wanna get past polite to have someone know the depths of my heart because what are they gonna think of me if they really know? Conceal, don't feel, you, you gotta be a certain kind of way for people to love you and accept you. But then in your own heart, you know you're not that way. Because of sin, and then because of sin, we feel shame, and then because of shame, we avoid, we blame others, we try to cover our bad. We see all of this played out in the Garden of Eden, don't we? There's sin, they sin against God, they disobey the Lord. They not only break his law, they break his heart because he wanted the relationship to be one of trust and dependence, and they chose independence, devaluing God, exalting himself. But then what they do, they cover themselves with fig leaves, and then they hide from the presence of God. That's exactly what happens when we, this is all, remember, the need for peace. So what does this mean for us in our lives, this need for peace? Well, our sinful individualism has broken our relationship with God so that we don't have peace with him. But our sinfulness, our sinful nature has also broken us from the inside. So we don't even have peace within ourselves. Rather, we have guilt, shame, and regret. And our sinful individualism has broken our relationships with others. So that we don't have peace with others. Maybe we devalue them. We just view them as tools to be used for our gain or for our good. Maybe we ignore people. They're just background players. We're the main characters in our life story. We just ignore people. Maybe we even go so far as demonizing them. We view them as enemies to be defeated if they stand in our way, if they disagree with us, if they wrong us in any way, we demonize them and think we need to defeat them. But lack of peace is not just a relational problem because it stems from this worldview of individualism. It stems from this sin in us that's not just, like John Henderson said, just doing sinful things, it's a whole way of being that exalts myself and devalues God. A lack of peace is not just a relational problem where we need better interpersonal skills. Lack of peace is a spiritual problem. Peace begins with our sin and then like dropping a pebble in a lake, it ripples out so that our broken relationship with God affects our brokenness inside of us and then that spills over into our relationships with people and it leads to more brokenness there. 
So if we're ever gonna have peace and be peacemakers with others, we need a solution that goes deep, not a surface level solution that teaches us better interpersonal skills about how to be peaceable people. We need a deep solution that goes deep into our hearts that actually cleanses us of the sin and self-centeredness that taints everything else about the way we live. So how can we be healed of this self-centeredness? How can we be healed of this thing that's causing a lack of peace in our life? It's kind of like, another way of asking this would be, how can we be saved from our sin? Which leads us right into the second point. The first point's the need for peace, which we may not need all that much convincing today. The second point is the person of peace. We often try to bring peace at the expense of others. Here's what I mean. Maybe you think peace is that everyone else is wrong, and you've got it right. You just don't understand the way I view things. You don't, our, our kids have started saying, you don't know my life. I'm like, where'd you hear that? But we all kind of think that to some extent, right? Somebody might say something to you or offend you or hurt you, and you may think, you don't know. You don't have it right. You don't know me. You don't know my world. You don't know what I've been through. You could never know. Or maybe it's just anything that you disagree on. You think, if only you knew all that I knew, you'd understand how right I am. I, I remember going through this as a, as a teenager and a college kid with my mom and just butting heads with my mom, thinking how much smarter, how much wiser, how much more I knew than her. And I would, all, I mean, I would just literally, conversation, just fights would happen over the smallest things that I would feel like I was right on. And she, for her part, wouldn't really fuel the argument or the fight, but there was enough in me that would keep it going. Like, you don't understand, I'm right and you're wrong and you need to come conform to me. And I was willing to make peace at the expense of others in that. I was willing to make peace in that sense at the expense of my mom. And everyone else is wrong and you need to come conform to me. But the other way of making peace on the other side of this equation, might be that you make peace at the expense of yourself. And you're not willing to make any conflict, you're not willing to stand up for yourself at all, you're not willing to stand up for what's right at all, and anybody who imposes any sort of worldview, any sort of idea, any sort of proposition to you, you don't wanna cause conflict and you just think, I'm just gonna go along with it. I wanna be a peaceable person. Whether it's right or whether it's wrong, you, you just kinda wanna lay down and go with the flow and you wanna kinda step back and just, I, don't, I really don't wanna cause conflict here. And you're willing to make peace at the expense of yourself and causing yourself to get hurt, causing yourself to be vulnerable, causing yourself to experience pain, also that you can have peace. So we, we know peace has to come I mean, maybe you're one of these, peace at the expense of others or peace at the expense of yourself. And the good news of scripture is that God brings peace at the expense of Jesus. You don't have to worry about who's gonna shoulder the weight of making peace. Whose expense are we gonna make peace at today? Who are we gonna crucify today in order to bring peace? Who has to be wrong and who has to be right to bring peace? No, no, God brings peace at the expense of Jesus. Colossians 1, 19 to 20 shows us that God brings peace through the work of Jesus. It says in verse 20, through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
Then we also see that God brings peace through the person of Jesus in Ephesians 2.14. For he himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace. And then we also see that this peace Jesus brings through his work and through his person is peace with God. Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God is another way of saying we have a right relationship with God. Reconciliation. Maybe you don't use the word reconciled all that much, but if you think about resolving conflict, reconciliation makes a lot of sense because you're taking two people who are at odds and you're bringing them back together again. So the heart of the gospel is reconciliation with God, a right relationship restored with God. And what does this right relationship entail? It means we relate to God rightly. We've said sins completely distorted our worldview so that we are the center of the universe. We are enthroned as the high and holy kings and queens of our own life and our will must be done and our kingdom must become. But, w- but what happens when the gospel comes in is that we then relate to God rightly and we're not trying to sit on the throne anymore but the gospel invites you to a great dethroning ceremony where we step down and we step back and we acknowledge that God is the center of the universe, not me. So to relate with God rightly means we view him and treat him as he truly is, the one, holy, eternal, loving God. And then by making us right with God, Jesus also places us back in our rightful place as creatures of God who were made by God and for God to be loved by God and to love him in return. And so Jesus defeated the thing that was causing our lack of peace, sin. He heals us of our selfishness, our self-centeredness, our individualism. And he took on the penalty of our sin by dying in our place. And the fact that he paid for our sin, he paid for the penalty of our sin, he died for us, he forgives us and heals us of our sin. But remember we said the heart of sin is self-centeredness? Well, then that must mean that Jesus saves us from ourselves. He saves us from ourselves. He frees you from seeing yourself as the center of the universe. That's not your weight to carry. And that's exactly why sin made us enemies with God because we were putting ourselves in the place that only God deserves to be, at the center of everything. But the gospel invites us to dethrone ourselves and rethrone God in our hearts. That's how Jesus makes peace with us and God and then he puts us in the right kind of place and position where then we can be peacemakers with others. But we can't be peacemakers with others unless this peace has come into our hearts with the Lord. And this peace is fact, not feeling. You are in a right position with God because of what Jesus has done, period. And so peace for us is found in God's presence. Peacemaking is impossible if I think I'm at the center of the universe because then I'm demanding people to conform to me. Think about in a marriage. It is impossible to bring peace if one person or (laughs) it could switch back and forth but if one of the people in a conflict is saying you must conform to me. There's nothing about my position that's wrong and you need to step into the blessed reality that is my life. See how that goes over. (laughs) That's not how you make peace in a marriage. We don't make peace, Carrie and I, by totally conforming to the other. We make peace by both of us moving into the presence of God together. 
So peacemaking is not you on the one hand saying, we're going to make peace at my expense. I've got to totally lay down and conform to somebody else. We don't make peace on the other hand by saying, you all need to conform to me. I'm right and you're wrong. We make peace by looking at others that we're not at peace with and saying, hey, God's inviting both of us to step into his presence and see all of reality in light of him. Let's go there together. And no matter what side of the conflict you're on, we're both gonna see things that we can repent of. We're both gonna see things that uh, are wrong and some maybe more than others. And that doesn't mean you're wrong. Like if you've been hurt, that doesn't mean you're wrong. But what it means in conflict is let's go deal with this in God's presence. Because the truth is you can't be a peacemaker if you don't have peace in your own heart and with God. You cannot pass on what you do not possess. You can't be a peacemaker unless you have peace. And so we move on to our last point of the morning, which is the work of peace. The work of peace. Jesus says in this beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers. What does that mean? What's the work of making peace? Well, first of all, peacemaking is a way of being. Like we've said with all these beatitudes, He's not just highlighting a slate of actions, he's highlighting a state of being. He's inviting us to become a certain kind of person. Not blessed are those who make peace, not blessed are those who do peaceful things or who are peaceful, blessed are those who are peacemakers. You're the kind of person that oozes peacemaking everywhere you go. Not a hat you take on and take off, but the kind of person who makes peace everywhere you go. Peacemakers are recognized here. It's, it's a way of being, and they're recognized in this beatitude as sons of God. Do, do you see that second phrase in Matthew 5, 9? For they shall be called sons of God. I wrestled with this. Because there's a way of reading the beatitudes that says, if this, then this. Maybe you've been taught that, or maybe you've just naturally read it as that because of the way it looks in English. Hey, uh, blessed are the peacemakers for they should be called sons of God. If you're a peacemaker, then you will be called a son of God. We know from the rest of scripture, that's not how salvation works. So what does this mean? This means that God looks at people who are peacemakers and recognizes his image in them and calls them out as his children. It's a recognition. God recognizes peacemakers as his children. So peacemakers are recognized as children of God and we bear that family resemblance by being a peacemaker. It's kind of like at Jesus' baptism, he says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus didn't become the son of God in that moment. God was calling him the son of God. He was recognizing Jesus for who he was, the eternal son of God. And that's what happens when we are peacemakers. He's saying, this is one way you bear the family resemblances. You make peace peace with people everywhere you go. So peacemaking is a, is a way of being. Peacemaking is also the way of Jesus. Discipleship is Jesus' invitation to follow him, to be made like him, to be changed, and then to join Jesus actually in his work. We often wanna skip to point three. Like, okay, Jesus, what are you telling me to do? And let me go out and do it before we are being with Jesus, following him, and experiencing the change Jesus brings. And if Jesus is telling us in his discipleship that we need to be peacemakers, then we've got to look to Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, how are you providing for me to become a peacemaker? What does this look like? I think Jesus shows us what it takes to bring peace in Philippians chapter two, verses one to 11, where Paul is writing to this church in Philippi and he's telling them, 
Uh, things like don't do anything from selfish ambition. Don't do anything from a heart of conceit where you're, you're conceited and prideful and puffed up. Actually, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Look to their interests. And then the key phrase in that passage there in Philippians 2, classic passage on living a humble life, having humility. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped. And then he goes on to show you the way Jesus humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant. He was born as a human being. He learned obedience all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's saying the only way you can live a humble life is if you have the mind of Jesus in you. So the way of peacemaking is the way of Jesus. When we take the mind of Jesus and we actually don't act out of selfish ambition, the big me, but actually in humility we begin to count others more significant than ourselves and that's not natural for any of us and it's only possible in Christ. Peacemaking is a way of being and it is the way of Jesus that he is not only our example but he's the power in us that leads us into it. But getting a little more specific, peacemakers actively pursue to make peace. Peacemakers are proactive. They're not just peaceable, like, hey, I'm not gonna cause any problems, I'm not gonna rock the boat, I'm not gonna cause, you know, I'm not gonna stir the pot at all, I don't wanna cause any conflict. That's just trying to be a wallflower. That's, that's being peaceable. Peacemakers are active to look for ways they can bring peace. Being a peacemaker is not just being kind or being quiet. Peacemakers go out of their way to bring restoration. And sometimes that means initiating conflict so that we can deal with reality. That's really difficult to initiate conflict. But that's what peacemakers have to do because peacemakers are stepping into a messy world with messy people with messy lives and messy hearts and we step into those lives not for my kingdom, not for my will, but for the kingdom of God and the will of God. Inviting people to be conformed to God's presence. Remember, that's where we're inviting people to go. So we step in and we invite people to view the reality of their lives and invite them to consider whether or not they're living in congruence with God's presence. And it takes proactively looking for that. Who, who has God put you around that you need to make peace with? I mean, maybe there's people there's relational strife you have right now. People even in the room, people in your family, friends. Maybe your marriage needs peace. I'm here to tell you this morning, if you're gonna be a peacemaker in any of those relational spheres, you're gonna have to be proactive. Take some steps to pursue it. Maybe even initiating conflict. But the, the next thing we see, if you're pursuing peace proactively, peacemakers don't just pursue, peacemakers listen. James 1, 19 to 20, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So many times in Paul's letters we see him warn against things like quarreling or fighting or arguing, the sort of division that comes from our words. And in James 1, we see James invite us into a life of being quick to hear. And that kind of sounds funny when you think about it. Like I can't, 
Have you ever heard a speaker say, I'm gonna talk fast so you listen fast? Like we, we really can't do that. Being quick to hear is an invitation to not have the first word or the last word. Being quick to hear is an invitation to not defend ourselves in conversation where there's conflict. There may be times that we need to bring up reality in these conflicts, but it means that I don't think I have to speak first or most or last in the conflict. It means I'm trusting the Spirit of God to do what only the Spirit of God can do in this conflict. And I'm gonna devote myself to living out James 1, 19 to 20, and that's listening. And I can listen to learn and not just to defend myself. So peacemakers pursue, peacemakers listen, and peacemakers forgive. There's so many things we could say about making peace. We were having the conversation this morning during our hour of prayer. I'll confess, we were talking a little bit during that prayer hour this morning. But we were talking about it, and I just said, there's so, I feel like we need, you could do sessions on this. And it's just scratching the surface of how to become the kind of person who makes peace. And one of the things I felt like we had to say this morning is peacemakers forgive. You're going to be wronged in this life, that's just a reality. Your choice is not whether or not people are gonna wrong you, you don't have that choice, it's gonna happen. Your choice is how you respond to it. And in the forgiveness, that doesn't mean you let go of the process of healing, the process of restoration, the process of protecting yourself from getting hurt in the future, it doesn't mean any of that. But in conflict, we're gonna have to forgive. I I read uh, a a guy in ministry, and he's been a pastor for years, Micah Freeze, say this week, he, he actually just put it out on Twitter. And I thought it was so profound about forgiveness. He says one of the most breathtaking moments of the human experience is when one asks another for forgiveness. A beautiful moment that's surpassed only by the granting of forgiveness. Forgiveness can be really beautiful, right? Because the moment leading up to the apology and forgiveness is a moment of great tension. I don't want to ask for forgiveness. I don't want to admit I'm wrong, I'm in need. I, I don't want to do any of that. But then the moment you ask for forgiveness, it's like a great relief. Like, oh, I don't have to pretend like I've got everything together and I don't have needs. I can come to the people in my life and say, I, I need to be forgiven. And then if you're the one doing the forgiving, it, isn't that a great relief? You don't have to keep a tally of all the ways people have wronged you, ready to bring it back up and hold it over their head. But instead, you can reaffirm your love for them and commit to walking with them towards health and wholeness and holiness. But harboring things like resentment and anger and frustration is quite the opposite of peacemaking. But pursuing peace intentionally often requires forgiveness for us. One thing I became sure of as I studied and read and prayed this week is that peacemaking is not natural for us. We're bent towards the kingdom of me. But when we encounter the person and the work of Jesus, we're invited to receive peace with God. And so that's my first question for you this morning to consider as we're moving to a time of response and we're gonna sing a song together and take the Lord's Supper. Have you received peace with God through Jesus? And that could be like a first time kind of question, like have you ever received peace with God through Jesus? Have you ever placed your faith and your trust in Jesus so that you said, Jesus, I don't have a relationship with God unless it's through you. 
Have you done that this morning? But it could be like a day-by-day thing. Do you receive peace with God day by day through Jesus? Or every day do you think, man, God's keeping this tally on you. And God's moving closer or further away. And every day you wake up a little anxious, a little worried, like, God, I'm going to have to make peace with you again. I'm going to have to figure out some way to get close to you again because there's some barrier in between us and I've got to figure out how to overcome that. Or, Or every day, do you know peace with God? You receive it. Have you received that peace with God even today? He said, God, I know it's only through Jesus that I have peace with you. That's what it means to preach the gospel to yourself every day. Have you received peace with God? Because it's only then that we're freed to follow the way of Jesus and grow into becoming a peacemaker. There's a right order to this thing and unless you receive peace with God, you you can't be a peacemaker. A good, true, lasting peacemaker. And then it seems obvious, but the other thing to ask is, what does it look like for you to make peace in your life right now, today? Who can you begin to pray for to restore relationship, to pursue relationship? Who do you need to make peace with? How do you need to make peace with your spouse, your kids, your friends, neighbors, people you work with? What steps do you need to take even this week? And I'll tell you a great first step is to pray for them just devote to bringing their name into the presence of God. Pray that God would give you his eyes for how he views those people. So this morning the invitation is to come to Jesus. Find peace with God. Find peace within yourself. And find peace with others. Let's pray. God, heavy topic. Um, A big topic, but a needed one. And God, I... I know this morning we didn't do justice to all the different ways we could talk about making peace, but I pray that your word would be, God, like seed that's sown in the ground that's gonna bear harvest. You promise it will, God. It's never gonna return void. And Jesus, as you cast this vision for us of being peacemakers, bearing the family resemblance of God by making peace with others, I pray that you'd burden our hearts to, like Paul says, as much as is possible, as much as it depends on us, live peaceably with everyone. I pray that you'd protect our church family from division, conflict that's unhealthy and lasting, God. I pray that you'd protect our church family from, God, unnecessary arguments and fights and quarrels, bickering, God. And instead, I pray that you'd give us a church full of peacemakers that even when there is conflict and disagreement and seeing things differently and people are sinning against one another or being sinned against God, that you'd give us a heart that's aiming at restoration, that's aiming at forgiveness, that's aiming at peace that only you can bring, God. And Father, I don't wanna ask you to do in our church anything that I'm not asking you to do in me, so do it in me first, God. Let me be a peacemaker. Father, I pray that we would receive peace through Jesus this morning and know that there's no way on our own we can have peace with you, but it is only through the person and the work of Jesus that we can have peace with you and peace with others. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.